Hello, welcome to Plant Pals, the podcast where I talk to my pals about plants. I'm your host, Mike, and I've just learned how to add a ton of reverb to my audio. <laughs> my guest this week is Luca Hickey. They are an incredible mycologist and very humble. Everybody, um, I'm Luca. Um, I'm the guest on Plant Pals podcast. <laughs> um, I, I study plants and mushrooms. <laughs> I mean, so badful. <laughs> I don't know stuff. what to say. You have seen. You're like, oh, I like mushrooms. You go out. You see the craziest shit. You can cite ID every milk coffee colored generic mushroom number three to like it's (laughs) i mean cluster yeah i mean like mushroom taxonomy is uh even more of a clusterfuck than plant taxonomy uh in a lot of different ways so i do my best when it comes to species ids and stuff but yeah i mean it's like um it's very easy to find stuff that isn't previously known when it comes to mushrooms because mm-hmm. if you just look hard enough at a specific place for long enough, you will find stuff that nobody knew was there because the amount of scientific work being put into it, like the amount of eyes around are just a lot scanter than with botanists. And then it's also the thing about mushrooms is that it's very difficult to get a gauge on what's actually in a given area. Um, Cause the mushroom itself grows and like some of them only grow for a few hours and the mushroom dies and you're like oh well i don't know what kind of fungi are actually in all this soil um so to really get any kind of uh, the barest minimum grasp on the fungal diversity of a place you have to go back there all the time and ideally you would want to do environmental sampling of dna and stuff too but like you know that's a lot of effort um (laughs) (laughs) pay us to do it we'll do it yeah 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 exactly i'll do it no problem but i i don't have no lab or, or, or funding um <laughs> I, I just almost, like to find my, pretty things holly talked me out of it but years ago i was looking up like build your own hood kits for like i guess there was like a small like 200 dollars like you know my my fucking childhood bedroom was not anywhere near a sterile environment (laughs) i was just like no it's fine i can do all sorts of cuttings i can get a whole little propagation business going on out of there i mean you can propagate a fair amount of stuff without sterilization but you like there's definitely especially with mushrooms um but you definitely run into some issues like i I've tried growing ferns from spore a couple of times. Um, it's really easy with sword ferns, but I haven't gotten any other ferns to start. And I, it was very non-sterile. It was really just a fish tank with like a layer of soil and then a drainage layer. Um, but if you take soil from a place that has sword ferns, like anywhere around and put it in that kind of a terrarium setup, you have like a bajillion ferns with zero effort. Sick. 
yeah, it's it's pretty cool. <laughs> I really wanted to grow um, Pentagramma triangularis, but everybody that says gotta be. Is it hard or easy? Everybody says it's difficult. Really, they're fucking everywhere. Yeah, I know. There's like some in the ditch down the road from here, like growing yeah, out of the cement. Road cuts. Yeah, I think I think that people grow them and they see the fronds dying back and they think like, oh, it's not doing yeah, well, yeah. it's dying, blah blah blah. But it's like that's what they do, and they're prettiest that way, right? <laughs> I've been trying to hunt down pentagramma gametophytes this spring, winter, whatever it is right now. Ooh, can you identify them? Um, it's. I I have a rough understanding that you know it's just the the green glob of organism. Yeah, if it's like but can if you it's tell... not an obvious liverwort, if it's next to pentagramma, you're like it's probably right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I've seen the little babies of Adi. Uh, not Adi. Uh, no, it is Adi Antum. That's not. It's the one that's not. It's lady fern, not oh ethereum? maiden's hair fern. Uh, yeah, ethereum. I've seen those ones coming out of the gametophytes, like their first frond really? in the wild, and it's so precious to see. Yeah, That's it's incredible. Cool. <laughs> I have, or we have a polystichum right outside my window that was like dying back, I assumed, for the summer, and now it's just kind of like zapped completely. Like it still has the it's faintest dead? amount. It's not dead. It has like the faintest amount of chlorophyll along like its midrib, but it's pretty brown otherwise. Oh, the le- the leaves that it still has out. Yeah, they'll be re- they'll be making new leaves pretty soon. I know, um, but there's no. I don't know if they do a fiddlehead shape, but there's nothing. I was like, they do they were surrounded by ivy, so I was like, all right, buddy. They like, start on, out with up. like cinnamon. They're like cinnamon colored hairs all over mm-hmm. them. They're really hairy. So if you look at the base in the center of the rosette, you can mm-hmm. usually see like little cinnamon colored um, tissue if it's if it's gonna come back, but. Hopefully. There's there's some kind of mysterious dieback with those ferns in some places. Like I know there's a park in Seattle where they just had a massive dieback, and nobody really understands why, to my knowledge. But I think it's probably heat related. Hmm. But in oh, the places know, where they're doing okay, they're yeah. a massive weed. Yeah, uh, I wish it'd get weedier here, but no, yeah, they it really kind of took a turn during that heat wave in September where it was like 108. Like, even under the Redwoods, it was just cooking. Yeah. I think that's uh, an issue for them. Yeah. But in Big Sur, um, no, this is somebody's master's thesis. I'm remembering. I'm not going to spill those beans. Keep an eye out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait, is okay. that public information or is that, like, the new research that they're going to have? Tell me about um, it later. Yeah. Um, okay, so circling back to mushrooms, how did you get into mushrooms? Um. Well, my dad is a mushroom forager he has been my whole life um i was born actually out in calistoga so we lived there for the first couple years of my life and then moved out here and the mountains around here have you know all the different live oak forests and such which are really really amazing for all of the gourmet fancy schmancy edible mushrooms that everybody likes um, and so I was always like kind of peripherally aware of that. And he would be drying the mu- mushrooms in the house all winter and making it all stink of porcini. Um, but I didn't really, I was really interested in nature and specifically like taxonomy and classification as a kid, 
based on mostly dinosaurs and aquarium fish. Um, I had planted aquariums growing up, um, for most of my life until, until college really. Um, and I didn't get interested in plants and mushrooms and outdoor stuff until I started in college and the college I went to Evergreen State College in Washington is on 10,000 acres of really awesome temperate rainforest. And so I just kind of got interested in like being able to go out into the forest and see things and know what I was looking at. Um, yeah, that was the most appealing thing to me. Uh, I joined the student club uh, geared around mycology there and we had like weekly mushroom walks. And I think by the second year I was in it, I was like helping to run it and yeah. Um, got really obsessed with that Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast book by, uh, our friends Christian and Noah. Um, so shout out to anybody on the West Coast who wants a mushroom field guide, get Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast. Seriously. Um, yeah. Even if you live in the Pacific Northwest, it is currently the best one out, even all the way up North, but they are going to come out with, um, I know Christian is an author. Is Noah on that one too? On the mushrooms as far of Cascadia. As I, know, book. I think it's both of them. Back yeah, in. yeah, and that's coming out in the future. I don't know if there's a date. Um, <laughs> just plugging, uh, random books. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I just got really interested in like knowing what I was looking at. I really like the tiny and obscure mushrooms. I was interested in plants as well, starting out a little bit looking around at nature, but mostly mosses, if I'm being quite honest. Wow, you started um, with moss? Yeah, they... they <sighs> when I first moved to Washington, I lived in, in Tacoma for a year because I was just kind of working in a kitchen and getting my state residency so that school would be cheaper. And... The urban mosses in Washington are really stunning. It's like every sidewalk and rock wall and stuff. If if nobody washes it for a year or two, it will have these incredible moss communities that just have these awesome turfs and textures and different shapes and sizes um, of them. And I really just, I like the tiny landscape view of it where things are yeah. so lush in miniature. <laughs> Do they get, um, like, old brick-and-mortar ferns? Yes. Absolutely. Oh, um, I saw w one of the jobs I worked in college. Um, oh, it was horrific. But the first... <laughs> it was a food, a food service job, like, in a warehouse packing up um, food. And one of the first things I did on that job was I drove two hours, maybe two and a half hours up with my new boss to the port of Seattle, where we took apart and loaded up into a car, a like three room sized giant commercial walk-in fridge. Um, and it was fucking disgusting and full of rat piss and horrible. Um, and I don't know why the hell that guy wanted to buy that fridge. Um, <laughs> but the one thing that I remember from that trip was the building that we got it out of was this old bakery in the port right on a dock. 
Um, and the whole outside in the cracks of the paint, it was painted like bright pink or something. In the cracks of the paint, there was licorice ferns, polypodium, yes. I'm forgetting uh, all of my Latin today. Cold dry? No, it's, um, it's uh, polypodium glyceriza. Oh, yeah. It's a sweet, sweet root one. People say they it tastes all... like licorice, but it doesn't. It's just like no. sweet and a little bit bitter, I think. I don't know. But they were yeah, in the, they were just like on this horrible, polluted dock building um and it's just like in the northwest it's really cool the different types of rainforest plants that can just like push through in urban settings because mm -hmm. there's just like so much water that at a certain point they can start treating the cement and such as if it was uh actually part of the environment yeah it's just a sunny cliff with low nutrients high in right. limestone most of the time right I mean, I think at the dock there was probably quite a bit of nutrients, but... <laughs> yeah, all the seagull shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, Luca, what have you been doing since college? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I graduated, like, into the pandemic, and uh, it took me a little bit to get moving in the field. Um, but I've been doing, like, mushroom education gigs for a while, and in the last year, I got started doing soil sampling, um, just kind of picking up tubes of soil, uh, sending them off to a lab where the fungi in them will get analyzed and cultured. Um, just kind of driving around Northern California, a little bit in Oregon, on different tracts of public land all, all by myself. Um, and that has been really such a great time. Um, yeah. Yeah, the most fun thing has been learning all of the trees. Uh, I mentioned earlier I'm into pines now, mm -hmm. um, but I like other trees too. Um, <laughs> oaks, oaks are oaks are all right. I'm still figuring them out. I oaks need a are book. All right? I need a book about them. Isn't there only like fucking fifty species of pine worldwide? What? No. There's yeah, more maybe than that. Under a hundred. All right. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. It, and like it's probably around a hundred. I have Which the, is wicked low. I have Pines of the World. Oh, you bought that? There's 115. Geographic. I have this book that is a um, U.S. Department of Agriculture, I guess Forest Service, uh, book from the 60s that has range maps for every single pine worldwide. Um, including some from like the Soviet Union, which I don't know how they got them back then, but it's pretty cool. Um, Every now and again, they during the Cold War, there's like these weird resources that would come out. I was like, yeah, out. we have this like cross cultural reach out, and then now we have this sick ass resource. All of the scientists who were working across those barriers, shout out to them uh, shout in out. those times and now. Um, but it has all of the Sorry. maps of all of the Ooh. different pines. Um, I mean, these are like in Europe and shit, but every episode, somebody busts out a visual medium. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we need to do video too, right? Um, but I, if I have a book, physical book, online yeah. books are fine, but it's not the same. Um, yeah, if I have books. a book on a, a group and it's like a good field guide or resource or something that's like the rabbit hole i will go down and yeah. so this summer i was like 
I was identifying all of the trees so I could know what kind of soil I was sampling. And then I was like bringing this book along with me, even though it's so flimsy, I tore it a little bit. Um, and looking at the county as I was in, because the California maps, it has um, a lot of county lines and such because it's on that fine of a scale. But I have found a couple of range expansions um, yeah. and not just based. Yeah, not just based on that book, but based on like what other people knew, too. Yeah, I found uh, Coulter Pines in Sonoma County recently. Really? Yes. Up at Lake <clears throat> Sonoma um, yeah. by Geyserville. And there's no record of them there that I could find. Yeah. But they're there. There's at least two or three of them. They're with the gray pines. And I've heard that they can hybridize, but I don't know what the hybrids are supposed to look like. So Is maybe that they're hybrids. Sabiniana? Yeah, Sabiniana. There, it's like okay. it's all Sabiniana forest with random oaks and shit, but it's serpentine. And there's quite a few colder pines. They're definitely different than the Sabinianas. Yeah, I don't know. I've cool. never seen Coulter pine other than that. Um, uh -huh. so I, I could be completely wrong about this, but like everybody I've talked to doesn't have other suggestions. So <laughs> <laughs> the shoe fits. That's the thing. It's like, I, I feel like everything's so combed over sometimes that I'm like, no, I'm getting it wrong. And it's like, no, sometimes like you find new things. Stuff is not combed over at all. Mm -hmm. And you just get into, just get into fungi. Like I was saying, it's really easy. I it's try. not that, I... it's not that easy, but <laughs> The th okay, this is this is a perfect thing then because I like to be the unknowing audience in this. I okay. every winter, every like November after the first rains, I'm like, fungi season. Let's do this. Also, you say fungi, not fungi. I I alternate how I say stuff that's Latin. Yeah, I switch it up. If if we're gonna be sticklers about it, it's fungi. Fungi. Yeah. Fungi. So every fungi. Damn shit! I already did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Every mushroom season, I am like, all right, like let's hit the ground running. Let's let's get uh, after the rains or what comes after the rain. You know the book with the trombone player, right, right, right. Um, and then I always try to bust it out. And for some reason, I just every time like the first milkmaid blooms, I'm like, all right, back to botany. Like that was a good three week run. Let's let's get going. I understand. But Springtime. I, I, hook. I I love I love mushrooms and I think they're incredible and they're so cool and they're so beautiful. And it's so fun to hunt them down and you can eat so many of them. But it's just like, I don't know. My brain has been so geared towards plants. I need to be fully converted. The wake up, the wake up of springtime is there's nothing else like it. And the mushrooms don't really respond the same way out here. So mm. I, I get, I get it. I was looking at a lot of milkmaids today. Um, <laughs> see, you can do both though. Cause it's there's true, nothing yeah. else blooming. It's milkmaids and the manzanitas are blooming. And then nothing else is blooming, but there's great fungi, so. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you don't have to, you don't have to get into mushrooms, though. You don't have to take me no, being I want in the to. pod class as a, um. <laughs> All the we can go on I a walk. All the mushroom people. Let's go on a walk. Let's do I it. I know we've been saying that for a while. I know. Um, we were going to come stay at my place two weeks ago, and then it flooded. <laughs> Yeah, it was a little bit hard to get there. I didn't have a yeah. helicopter like uh, Mr. Brandon. <laughs> uh, you have a favorite species of mushroom? Mm. I mean... Favorite Basidiomycete, Ascomycete, Oomycete, Deuteromycete. 
Well, it's all basidiomycetes. It's all basi- I don't know what a deuteromycetes even is. They I don't, don't remember that. Fuck. Nobody can prove they have sex. Are they just like asexual soil or, or microphone? Yeah. Guy? Yeah, yeah. No one's ever. I, the sticking point I think I remember learning about was like no one's ever observed them reproduce sexually. It's like one of those things is we can't prove it because we've never seen yeah, it. Yeah. A lot of fungi that are asexual that don't like. So sex is a little bit subjective um yeah, a lot of them do 23,000 hor- genders for some species. yeah well and then a lot of the ones that like we perceive as asexual like the way that they get genetic variation into the population is they just do like horizontal gene transfer basically mm-hmm. um n- f- fungal strands or hyphae can have like many nuclei in them so they could like join together and pass nuclei back and forth without actually recombining DNA at all, and then separate into two that different must feel great. things. Yeah, it probably does. Um, as far as favorite fungi, I just have to say, like, waxy cap family overall is stunners. Um, and with regards to specific species, it gets very hard. Um, yeah. for me because I there's just so many mushrooms that I'm r- really fond of I really like parrot mushrooms as you probably know Gleophorus citocinus yeah or Gleophorus citocinus sensulato or whatever depending on who you ask um <laughs> they're yeah they're usually green with a yellow stipe but they stipe is the stem um but they can turn like pink or brown or blue or red or all kinds of different colors on the cap. Um, and they're really, really slimy and they've got really thick, chunky gills. And the genus Gleophorus uh, poses some issues with our genetic analysis. So that's why I say sensulato or not, depending on who you ask, because it's like... Um, yeah, it's unclear if they, if their tissue somehow poses issues for the way that we're extracting and replicating the DNA, or if they just have hyper varied genes in the regions that we sequence. So we need to do some work with them, which is kind of part of why I find them so fascinating is the difficulties mm-hmm. <laughs> surrounding them. <laughs> some people think it's the slime. And it makes, like, the DNA extraction more tricky. Um, some people think they're hyper-diverse, but, like, for example, my friend, Lauren, from Washington, picked two that were growing, like, basically from the same cluster and ran their DNA separately, and they come back far enough apart that we would consider renaming them as, as splitting them. Wow. Um, so it's like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, (laughs) the species concept really breaks down immediately. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I love to be a splitter. Um, but if we're just going based off of a single conserved unit in the DNA, like it is usually conserved. That's like good to use for barcoding and stuff, but we are just going off of this really short data set with a certain amount of base pairs in it. Um, I don't think that without other meaningful input is enough uh, to split mushrooms that 
all look the same and grow together in exactly the same habitat and the sequences match random ones from all over the world or at least all over the northern hemisphere i don't know i think i think needs more work um in that regard <laughs> but there are definitely some where it's a lot more clear cut that like yes we do in fact have a brand new species um like i've found some that just look like generic red waxy caps up in washington that are certainly new um and yeah i don't know i found a lot of red uh not red sorry i found a lot of new mushrooms <laughs> and i can't remember all of them <laughs> all of jesus that's a flex um it's it's not a flex <laughs> <laughs> i know i'm just busting but I mean, some it of is, them though. like that is super cool some of them that. are are working on being described like i found a, a waxy cap that comes up in redwood forests after the fire um that christian schwartz is working on it's a gray and gray and white one i found them yesterday um and so those have been overlooked or, or not noticed for a really long time um, but now he and a collaborator are working on naming them. Um, he has a lot of non-profs in the work. There's also, okay, well, this one I know I'm allowed to talk about. Um, it's in Redwood Coast as Gleophorus fenestratus, the windowed waxy cap. Um, it has a, a translucent, milky white to transparent, like, umbo, which is the nipple top, the, the like, part of the cap that's the point. N nipple top what, what does that mean that um, was very, <laughs> i got that immediately it was like yeah, okay good top. good um they're just like really slimy red and yellow waxy caps but they've got that really transparent or milky colored cap and they're mm. in redwood coast as a gliophorus but it's really a hygrosabi um and they were described as hygrosophy glutinopes as a variant of that mushroom, which is an East is Coast the mushroom. burnt orange one? It's like, it's kind of burnt orange. It's like really orange yellow. Like Yeah, there's like a working name, I thought, where it was like yeah. amber or ochre or something. Really? Uh, maybe I'm getting it twisted with another In one. In the Latin name? Should be split. No, no, it's just like they give it like a parenthetical, like, oh, it's like, you know, it's this species, but it's really not, but nobody's described it, so we're going to call oh, it yeah. like burnt red or something no this one um oh i think i know what you're talking i think you're talking about the rustla ochre oaks oh uh, yep <laughs> yeah that's a that's um that's a there's several ochre oaks rustlas actually that it's like two or three species mm -hmm. of those um but this this waxy cap has a working name fenestrata um, and I found them up in Washington, so that's like a range expansion, and I've got some, some microdata and stuff on them that I took during college and never really did anything with, but, um, maybe it will contribute to somebody actually describing them someday. I know yeah. Christian wrote the working name, so. That is super cool. Um. Do you remember the first time you discovered something new? Ooh, um, no, actually. Um, <laughs> lost in the sauce, just fucking left and right. 
I like, so I joined in college, I joined a project which at the time was called the Mycoflora Project. Now it's Fungal Diversity Survey, who I'm actually employed with them now, but I was just volunteering and sending them mushrooms at the time. And there was a project based out of Olympia with my good friend Steve Ness, um, who was looking at the waxy caps of the area. And he got grants through the project. So we were able to send off just like bulk amounts of waxy caps for sequencing and didn't have to pay for them. Um, and so I, as soon as that started happening, it was like, I'm inundated with stuff that could be new. <laughs> yeah. And the way, cool. the way the waxy cap distribution works for their habitat is there's something called Chegg. Um, which we've probably talked about before, but it is an association of four different mushroom families, uh, Claveriaceae, which are basidiomycete clubs that are closely related to waxy caps, actually, but that's a whole nother story. Um, Antilomataceae, the pink gills, which have pink spores that have like a really crystalline shape under the microscope. And a lot of them have really bright colors like blues and reds and things too. And then there is Geoglossaceae. So that's the earth tongue family. Um, those are also club shaped mushrooms, but they're ascomycetes. Um, so these Which four families, the uh, that's Hygrophoraceae. I don't know if I, did I not say that? Claveriaceae, C, Hygrophoraceae, waxy caps, H, E, Antilomataceae, uh, pink gills, and G, Geoglossaceae, earth tongues. Um, and these mushrooms share habitats to the point where they they have like clusters of diversity on the like 50 foot kind of range where it's like a tiny cluster where all of these different species of these four groups of mushrooms come out and there's not nearly as many of them or as much diversity all around even though the habitat is all the same and this doesn't correlate to plant diversity, at least not vascular plants. Um, and this happens all over the world in all different types of habitats. So the place that this has been mostly studied was in Northern Europe because their waxy cap habitat is unfertilized grassland, really. Like in the UK, um, Chegg grows in lawns that, or I say lawns, but I mean turf grassland. That's mm. what they call it. That's what they call it ecologically there. I'm not crazy. Um, <laughs> they like grazing because those are grazing mediated landscapes typically. So if, if you graze with sheep or some of the waxy cat preserves, they actually mow with scythes still. Um, but they hate fertilizer and they hate tilling. So they, they, uh, those things are really negatively impact them in these grassland habitats. And there they have conservation pro programs for them. Um, and something that they did, yeah, something that they did in the last couple of years that I thought was really cool was they made an app um, and told people to go out and just snap pictures of wax caps and put them on an app. It's basically iNaturalist, but for waxy caps only and only for the UK. And through doing this, they got like, I don't know, at least a couple dozen more sites protected. Um, 
because the the people who put out the app were the Nature Conservancy, and they were basically looking for micro spots of wax cap diversity to protect these little pockets of grassland. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were able to do that just through a citizen science. But I'm getting completely off of track, aren't I? We didn't have um, Okay, that's true. <laughs> I was talking. I was talking about Chegg. Um, (laughs) so that's crazy though in the UK that, um, these areas crop up with the diversity because like, chances are, unless you're in the Highlands of Scotland, it's, you know, a deforested area. So that had to have happened in the last, you know, X amount of centuries since grazing and agriculture has been the law of the land. Yeah, absolutely. Quickly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they are definitely man-made ecosystems in the UK for sure, where where a lot of the waxy caps grow. But they're more of a medieval style land man-made ecosystem. They don't like post World War Two shit. Um, <laughs> um, but another interesting thing about the Chegg habitat being you know it's it's so different because here on the west coast in washington it's in dark rainforest just like it is down here here it's with the redwoods but up there it's with um red cedar mostly which is close to redwood um but in the northwest the soil there is really nutrient poor and people don't keep up on their lawn fertilizer all of the time and the soil, all of the nutrients wash out of the soil, and the lawn grass will start to thin out and you get more moss. The lawn grass will start to actually segregate itself into clumps where it looks like a bunch grass landscape, but it's not, it's turf grass. And you get moss in between those. And that kind of habitat seems to stimulate this Northern European short grassland habitat really well in the Northwest where the weather is similar to the UK. So I have found equal amounts of waxy cap hotspot diversity in a mode place in the, in the middle of a two lane road um, that I do in the middle of the forest, like well-preserved seepy wetland. It's not, it's like they see, they like the mowing, but it's like less about, the exact habitat and more about the specific geographical place, which is so weird and is, <laughs> I don't know. They're just more and more a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> more, you know, the more you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Like reading up on them in college. Like I read first about this, the initial paper that I read about Chegg, they were talking about, Oh, you know, it's 1995. We got these newfangled GPS gadgets and they can actually track us <laughs> down to the accuracy of 10 feet. Um, and so they were really hyped about that and they were using it to plot out where the mushrooms grow. And they were like, wow, this is really wacky. Like it's, we're finding that it's statistically significant that they're all growing in these micro clusters even within a small patch of grassland and so i thought to myself like well i already know at one spot on this campus where there is this hyper focused little patch of waxy cap diversity i wonder if i can find any more and in my senior year i found and mapped 
Uh, nobody gets the maps unless I trust you. Um, <laughs> I mapped like four different spots on that campus where it's just like inscrutably there's a huge amount of waxy caps just in this one spot. And they're not all high quality. Like some of them are in central campus surrounded by buildings and stuff like that. So it's just, I, <laughs> so I don't know what, what they're doing. The, yeah. What's the magic ingredient that makes them all congregate? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I'm sure the ones... it's 19 magic ingredients that work in a magic way to make it just right. Yeah. So it's <laughs> the ones whose ecology we know are endophytes or lichenized. Um, so Geoglossaceae comes from a lineage of lichens, but they're pretty much all lichens. Some of them are some of them are, are plant associated as well, but I think they're pretty much all lichens. There are several lineages of waxy cap lichens. Um, there is lichen omphalia. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Um, they're in your area. They, there are these little tiny brown, sometimes whitish mushrooms and they grow on wood, but the wood will have a green mat of algae on it. And that's the lichen thallus. And then there's also oh. folios. There's also folios waxy cap lichens down in South America. And like I said oh. before, and like I said before, Claveriaceae, the the C yeah. and Chegg, is closely related to waxy caps. Mm -hmm. So that makes three out of four families that have lichenized members. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now in fungi, we see. Over long periods of evolutionary time, there are these patterns where certain fungi that have adaptations for one trophic lifestyle can jump back and forth for up from to others. So, for example, insect pathogen fungi are often really closely related to fungal pathogen fungi. And that's because insect exoskeletons and fungal cells are both largely made of chitin. Oh, um, okay. so they have a lot of chitinases that they can use to break down insects. And then it's relatively e easy in evolutionary terms for an insect eater to eat mushroom and vice versa. Mm -hmm. It seems like there is something similar to that going on with these Chegg lineages where they have a predisposition to become lichenized and also to become endophytes where they're living inside of the living tissue of plants. So they're Many, not friends. They're slow. It's you're witnessing extreme warfare in these small areas. Well, I don't even know. Cause a lot of, a lot of plant, like, the like endophytic, endophytic fungi are not necessarily beneficial or detrimental to the host plant. And some of them are very detrimental, and some of them are very beneficial. Um, and also, it doesn't correlate that well to plant diversity. Um, and yeah, so the the way that we see them propagating a lot of the time is through the seed. You can take a seed from a host plant and find waxy cap DNA in there. 
Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so that, that's been found like through environmental sampling, but there was also um, a really interesting study done by somebody doing their master's in Europe. Um, her name is Patty Silva Flores. Shout out. Um, and she was trying to, they, they had found that in common plantain leaf, um, you find the DNA of all of these different species of waxy caps. So they they thought, great, it must be possible to inoculate this and get it, this system to work in a lab where we have the red waxy cap that we put into this plantain and we got it in a sterile environment and we know that it worked. Um, so that was the goal. She took a bunch of plantain seeds, sterilized them really good and put them into the sterile environments and inoculated them with spores. Um, now she inoculated them with a red waxy cap spores, Hygrostomy coccinea. It's a common waxy cap. We find it here too. She did not get any Hygrostomy coccinea, but she did get several other species of waxy caps from those sterile chamber experiments once the plantains had grown. Um, so that implies that they were being passed down in the seed. And we have uh, genetic data of that happening in Festuca seeds uh, from Washington and Oregon as well. So when you say they find the DNA within the seed or the leaf, is it within the tissue or is it like it's hitching a ride on the seed? It's in the tissue. Lands? It's in the tissue. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Huh. They're fully, they're fully endophytes. Wow. Um, some of the hygrophorus seem to be mycorrhizal in some regard with like pine trees and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard that they live more inside the root than around the root. And that when they do live around the root in the soil, they don't go into the soil very much. So they're kind of more hugging close onto the plant. And yeah, and yeah the function of them is really unclear. Um, and also what the hell do they have to do with any of these other fungal families? Like, I think some of the geoglossaceae are also probably endophytes, but they all share the same host plants in a lot of contexts. So why mm. do they have these tiny pockets of extreme diversity? Um, and especially in areas with super poor, uh, plant diversity. It's really, it's kind of wacky um i'm sorry is there a frog in your a background frog? in my background i'm i'm I so think stoked it's your there. i'm just trying to pinpoint yes i have frogs now That's i do have some frogs out here they they seem to yeah. be having a good year yeah i they the seer and tree frogs have been everywhere yeah yeah, yeah it's Lovely. great it's like um there's a there's this small river valley down the road or down the down the hill from here and hmm. The way it sounds now is almost the way it did when I was a little kid. It's really great. Um, it's so loud. If I go out on the porch, it's like, yeah, like just a roar you. of them. And they're like a mile or two away. Damn. Um, Alon and I and my family went to Dollywood over the summer. Which <laughs> southeastern Tennessee in late July is like oppressively loud at night with cicadas and frogs and crickets. Oh like, really? I didn't realize, like, yeah, like people from the Western U.S. like they don't get they don't get that buffeting effect of everything 
trying to fight and fuck at night for three months out of the year. Oh, right. It's wet summer out there, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, I Must be nice. We had a cicada brood when I was like in eighth grade. Um, brood uh, 14XIV, whichever that is. We have wow. a weird disjunct in Massachusetts. Mm. There's a one, for whatever reason, there's a population of the brood 14, mm. like, you know, however many miles away from the next population, at least on a county map that I've seen. Um, Whoa, wait, wait, wait. So, okay, no, 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 go on. I have another question, but go on. Tell me what you're No, I was just going to say, I just remember it being like everyone, I remember like Ian, who's from Pennsylvania, he mm-hmm. went home specifically for the the i don't know if it was brood 14 or what brood 12 but he was like made, people were like making it a point to go east to listen to the cicadas i was like that was the most annoying shit i'd ever experienced <laughs> they do they do have a really horrible sound um but the way that they all come out in the east is really crazy to me i've never seen anything like that in my life i think it's the coolest thing just overwhelm your predators that's that's one hell of an at like is that what the strategy is yeah just well they can't kill us all is their entire evolutionary strategy Mm -hmm. it's like when they try to storm area 51 like they can't (laughs) shoot all of us speaking of um after your question really well you saw a ufo oh yes okay so first first of all my question um, when you talk about brood 14, is that brood 14 of this species that has X or Y amount of broods, or is it a different species? Editor's note, we're going to say a lot of wrong things about cicadas for the next couple minutes, but we get there in the end. I want to say it is the same species, and it's just every year is a different brood, and so okay. some broods are a lot like magnitudes larger than others oh so you do get one every year but sometimes yeah, there are huge every populations year, yeah exactly like there's cicadas every year it's just those massive broods wow. come every so many years okay so, yeah, and so like, and brood 14 but and brood for me neither um, it must be brood, every 14 years because 2022 last time was like 2008 Every 14. But if they're all the same species, why do some of them have long periods and some of them have short periods in the round? Or is it every year there's some and this this one that happens on the 14th year we started counting is really big? It must be. Let's see. 17 and 13 year period. I can edit all this out because I'm just generally interested now. Yeah, me oh, too. Okay, it's it's several. It's um, I don't have the Magic Cicada, Septin Decim Cassini, and Septin That's one I can't do that on a podcast right now. Oh, they actually um, just put it in the Latin name. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's three species. Um, oh, it's weird. It seems like the species all sync up. So like, let's see, Brood twenty two. It's every 13 years, um, and it's three different species in Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, uh, Mississippi, and Ohio. Oh, the browser is a little cicada on this website. That's fun. Cicadamania.com. <laughs> um, yeah, son of a bitch. I, I really thought wow. I had an understanding of cicadas. I do not. 
I, no, 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 with annual cicada species. So it's all different species. Okay, scratch everything okay. I just said for the last three minutes. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Okay, so my UFO story actually <laughs> happened the other day, like two days ago. Yeah. Um, I saw something weird. I'm not like... I think it was birds, to be quite honest. Oh, um, you, sh you government shill. But... <laughs> Well, we know those aren't aren't real, right? Exactly. So, um, it was it was kind of spooky, though. I think it it could have been somebody's fancy Silicon Valley type drone project, also. What um, was this? so this was out of Ukiah. I was coming back from a day sampling mushrooms out in the redwoods, and. I was driving really slow because there's really high tree diversity on that road. And I like uh, botanizing from the car, even though it's not necessarily a safe thing to be doing. Um, but there was nobody around. So I was going like five miles an hour and I saw this flock of black shiny orbs across the canyon. And Above they really... The Yes, above the forest. And they all moved together. They were, like, flying up above the trees, and then they kind of all did a turn at the same time and then went back down towards the trees and then became really hard to see. It didn't look like they disappeared into the trees. It looked like they disappeared right in front of the trees. Mm. Um, Cloaking technology. I know it did. It did look like that, but I, to be quite honest, I do think it was a group of crows or something. I'm not really sure. They <laughs> they looked really round, and I never saw the wings move, okay. um, which was kind of interesting. I I have seen drone technology. I saw what really looked like one of those military reconnaissance drones. Um, oh, the ones I, with the like, they're kind of like a penis with wings. Yeah, like a big white weird thing that kind of looks like a normal like plane, but not. That head and the wings are like not centered. They're like towards the back of it. Yeah. More. I saw yeah. one of those recently. Like, I think it was in Marin County. I was like going down to Oakland or something. It was like, okay, that's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I've seen, I've seen um, another, I've saw a group of similar crafts. This is all in the daytime. I've never mm -hmm. seen anything weird at night. Um, that's when I saw. I saw that night. Yeah, I, I just listened to it. Your story. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I saw another group of like shiny white small planes that were all flying closely in formation, too small to have people in them, and that all mm. turned around at the same time. Oh, on a dime before, but that was also like close to San Francisco, so it was probably Silicon Valley dystopian military technology yeah. or something like. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I remember San Francisco wanted to implement police dogs with guns. I thought they already did that. No, Didn't they, I think like... it was one of those. They did the thing where there was such immediate blowback. They're like, no, nah, that was just a leaked draft opinion. We weren't actually considering that. <laughs> it's a prank, bro. It's a prank. Yeah, seriously. Like, we're going to do it, but when you're not looking. For years. <laughs> well, that's, that's probably good. I, uh,. Remember seeing that? Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it's, de it's definitely good. I don't. 
I don't want to be uh, wishy-washy on the issue of, it's, of you killer, know, this, killer I can robots. see both sides of the killer robot <laughs> dog, you know? <laughs> They're good people, you know? They gotta do what they gotta do. Yeah, um, of course. Fucking Joe Rogan-ass explanation of killer Sometimes robot Sometimes you have to think about if the robot uh, has PTSD afterwards and feels bad after I it kills. I am going to be... You know how there's always, like, you know, like... Well, I guess Westworld's not the right example because they do horrible things to those robots. But, like, the the movies where the robot is self-aware or yeah. thinks it is, and then the humans are like, oh, go fuck yourself, you awful robot. I feel like I don't know if I wouldn't be a go-fuck-yourself person. I am so anti-robots that I'm, like... I'm like, highly anti-robot. It's, but that's the thing, man. It's, if, like, a robot had a soul... Or you know, thought it had a soul. It might as well. I'm yeah. still like, if it. If, I like, just don't Chad think GPT, they. I just don't think they do though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, that's like, but like, when I'm so I'm so much a kill it, burn it with fire immediately, shut it down, like discontinue this robot. 100%. Like that's the origin story for the Matrix is the robot workers start asking for rights and then humans come in and are like nope done gone and then <laughs> eventually gets out of hand it's in the animatrix is that in the matrix yeah is that like an- animatrix yeah i haven't seen the animatrix there's a bunch of different styles of uh, that sounds good uh, that's cool i like i i'm a matrix sequel defender not the fourth one i haven't seen that one i'm a matrix sequel defender and i'm a star wars prequel defender as well um so those are my hot uh takes on b- movies that people say are charm. bad um um <laughs> yeah definitely definitely jar jar has charm and i think probably most of that it for me is seeing jar jar for the first time when i was like nine like, what the fuck? um but why is yeah. it jamaican no that part wasn't so clear you know what? i can't defend the star wars prequels because Watto is just a flying space jew i'm I'm not going to defend any of the um, the racial characters in the Star Wars prequels. I'm just going to defend them because I like watching them. Because I the liked Lego them when I was a kid ass. and they're goofy. Um, yes! Yes! And all of the games from before the Disney Star mm-hmm. Wars era, when it was like the early 2000s and anybody could license Star Wars shit for anything... There's like a million terrible computer games that I absolutely loved. Computer game. Um. <laughs> it's like one of those like Jar Jar teaches you like basic basic arithmetic kind of thing. Oh God, Jar Jar is not a, a good teacher. I don't know why they would pick. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I mean, that really says a lot about our society. He's kind of a Justin Justin <laughs> Trudeau movie, He's got like figure. Joker mascara. Um, Why is this so serious? <laughs> <laughs> um, fuck. What was the other thing you defend? Oh yeah, no. I think the Matrix pre the, uh, sequels, the, but I, I also haven't the seen them. The in Matrix a while. spoiler. There's a twenty year old movie where the matrix is part of like him neo becoming aware and leading the rebellion is like part of the programming to purge any errors and start over again like that's the fucking best twist ever 
Yeah, that's cool. I don't know why people don't uh, I mean, like that it. that scene where he's talking to the overseer and he's surrounded by, like, every possibility in a TV screen. And he's like, bullshit. And then it's like nine million calories going like, bullshit. <laughs> like, all right, yeah, it's a little goofy. But, uh, no, I loved that. Like, he... Yeah. yeah. He's not the hero that saves it's the world. Cool. Like, it's he's, cool. Number seven might do it. <laughs> you don't know. That was tight. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is a movie podcast so now. Rowling. Oh gosh, no! You'll really, you'll really hit, hit uh, peak white man if you I have a movie podcast. Don't think critically enough about visual media to have hard opinions. No, me neither. And also, I think that having too much of opinions about like media and stuff <laughs> is boring. And God damn, we have veered way off topic. All right, let's wrap it up. Do you have yeah, anything you want okay, people okay. to know about? Any projects you got? Any INAT things? Any papers? Any new species? Oh, gosh. I mean, um, I don't have enough projects. I should have more projects. Um, I might have a project sometime in the pipeline, but and yeah, that's you not lost. a thing. I do have walks sometimes. If you're in, well, I'm not gonna, you know, they're usually in Washington, usually in Olympia, but I, in the future, they w might be bringing some to other places. But, um, yeah, generally, if you're in Olympia area and want to come to a mushroom walk with me and my friend Lauren, uh, we do those in the fall and the winter time and, uh, probably branching out in locations as well in the next year or so and uh i'm on instagram as species i see with dots in the spaces um and <laughs> perfect yeah cool <laughs> thank you i have another thing like i <laughs> my friend and i wrote a little booklet about introductory mycology stuff but i need to like reformat it but i want to make it available online cool. pretty soon so like I, I yeah um sweet and then boom i'll crash in the music <laughs>